Now we're going to look at the scripture together. If you have a Bible, go ahead and grab that Bible and open it up to Genesis. We're at the end of Genesis in the Joseph stories. We've been uh, meditating on pondering God's purposes in a dysfunctional world. What's really been helpful about looking at the life of Joseph is that he can remind us of our life. We may not be uh, in such an important or big public position that Joseph is, but we do know what it looks like to go through craziness in our life and to be able to then look back at times and say, you know what, though, God was at work despite that craziness, despite that pain. We're seeing more of it this week in chapter 45. It's kind of the big climax of the story. There's still some kind of tying up of loose ends that we'll see the next few weeks in the story. Um, but today, chapter 45, we're calling it Haunted by God. I thought, you know, it's Halloween this week. We've got to keep with the theme. Um, Haunted by God. There's a famous poem. We say poem here or poem, which I don't know what's proper in Texas. But um, I grew up here, but I feel like I always say it wrong. Poem? 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 We want to take a vote? Who says poem? Anyone? Who says poem? Uh, poema? Anybody else? Okay. All right, poem. This is this fantastic poem. It's called uh, The Hound of Heaven. Have you heard of The Hound of Heaven? Uh, old British guy wrote it years ago. This guy was a, a great poet, but he had had some sickness and had some issues, got addicted to opium and you know, was living on the street, really struggling, but uh, found some redemption, found some help, and wrote this poem as a result of that. So I'm going to read just a snippet of it for you. Um, you might want to close your eyes. You may not if you're claustrophobic or you're scared of the people next to you. Keep them open. But just listen to this. I heard a story once, an incredible story. It told of one who is relentlessly faithful and loves with an unwavering love. It was said that he sorrows over broken people. It was said that he tirelessly pursues each lost one, never stopping, never giving up until, until, but if I let him in, what would I have to give up? What would I have left that I could say was mine? Anyway, it was just a story, just a story. But if it was only a story, why did thoughts of him trouble my dreams? Glimpses in the moonlight, glimpses in the starlight, whispers in the midnight breeze. Gradually, the whispers became a sound perceptible only late at night, when all the world was silent and asleep except for me and my pounding heart and the distant sound coming closer. Soon I could hear it by day as well, stronger, constant, unhurrying, and now I could tell what it was. The beat of footsteps, footsteps coming down the street, footsteps on the sidewalk, footsteps at the door, footsteps coming. He was coming, the one I had heard about, coming for me, and so I fled. I'll stop there. If you want to hear more of the story, you can look it up. Um, This is an updated version by Brian Oxley, but the original poem is called The Hound of Heaven by Francis Thompson. Um, and it's a fantastic story. And, and what it sets for us is this reality that I think we all know of a little bit spiritually. Have you ever heard of Stockholm Syndrome? Stockholm Syndrome is where you be- become uh, comfortable and secure with your captors. Someone has kidnapped you. Someone doesn't really want what's good for you, but you've become secure and comfortable with them. And then you're afraid of those that want you to have freedom. And that's what the story is describing. The hound of heaven, the Holy Spirit, God himself is chasing us and pursuing us and wants you to have freedom. Wants you to be set free spiritually, but you're afraid of him. You don't want to give in to him, and so you flee. And that's what the story describes. Well, the Joseph story is similar in that it describes different characters, different people at different places spiritually who are either submitting to or running from God at varying levels. 
And so this story is now coming to a head in Genesis chapter 45. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, you can grab one of those black Bibles you'll see under the chairs. If you grab that Bible and open it up, I believe we're on page 38. Yeah, I don't have it marked here. I think it's 38 in the black Bibles. Yes, okay. Um, So open up that black Bible to page 38. It's Genesis chapter 45. We're going to start with the first few verses here. Um, And so to bring you up to speed, those of you that haven't heard the story, Joseph has been terribly abused by his brothers. He's been sold into slavery. They've been jealous of him. They sold him into slavery to Egypt. Once he was in Egypt, he started to rise to power and make a name for himself, but then was betrayed again and betrayed again and forgotten and hurt and abused again and again. But now, Once again, he's risen to power and God has put him in place as the assistant to Pharaoh, as basically the one running the country, saving the country from this great famine. And he's now in a position and an ability to save his brothers. His brothers come to him looking for help, but he doesn't know if he can trust them yet because they've betrayed him and tried to kill him. And so he tests them in many different ways. And now the end of the testing has come. And we saw last week, Judah stands as a representative for the other brothers and offers himself in exchange to let his younger brother go free. And this moment of Christ-like sacrifice breaks Joseph. And that's where we are now. Joseph is broken and ready to reveal the whole story to them. So chapter 45, verse 1. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it. And the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves, because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on the earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you that you're involved in our life and in this world in ways that we often do not and cannot comprehend. But we pray that you would give us faith to see the way in which you are haunting our story and our life. I pray that you would help us to see that you are the one pursuing us, but you are pursuing us for good and that you love us. And so God, I pray that you'd open our eyes. For those of us that know you, help us to see in a fresh new way that we can trust you, that you are at work in the good times and the bad. For those of us that that don't know you or are skeptical of these claims, God, give us an open mind. Help us to pause, to consider, to see what you are doing. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So the big idea is that we are haunted by God. That God is actually at work in the good and the bad. In the things that we love and in the things that we hate and recoil from. And God is somehow at work in all those things. We want to be clear that evil is still evil. Bad is still bad. And God loves what is good. But God is so big, God is so sovereign, God is so supernatural and other than us that even in the pain and the evil, as Joseph says at the end of the story, what some intend for evil, God can somehow intend for good. God can can rework and repurpose and redirect things so that even the bad things can be turned for his glory. Romans 8, 28 is a famous verse that talks about that all things work together for good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. 
So God is so incredible that he can overpower even, even the bad and the evil that we've experienced. That doesn't make the evil good, but it's a reassurance that God can, can work good out of these terrible things. So the three main points that will unfold in this story. One, God repurposes our pain. God repurposes our pain. The second point is that God reconciles enemies. And then the final point is that God redirects kings. Um, God repurposes our pain is the first point, the first main idea here. We see this in the first few verses that I already read. I don't know if you noticed this in the reading, but there is a repetition that Joseph hammers again and again and again, right? Verse 5, verse 7, verse 8, I think it is. Um, Let me go back through here. Verse 5, he says that you sold me, but what? God sent me. You see that contrast? You sold me. So in a sense, he's not letting them off the hook, even while he's letting them off the hook, right? So he's saying, don't be distressed, don't be angry because of the horrible evil you did, right? He's not letting them off the hook. And we got to remember that there's all these stories that have gone before, right? Where he was testing them, where he was pressing them as a judge, where he was treating them in, in some ways that made us uncomfortable. And I think Christians still debate that. And I've purposely tried to not solve it for you, right? I've said, I, I personally think what he did was okay, but I also would say it's questionable, right? We're not sure if exactly everything he did was okay, and I'm fine with that. Let's question that. I think the important thing is, what's God doing here? That's the important thing. And so Joseph is speaking for God here, and he's saying, okay, you did evil things, you did bad things, and Joseph got to see them come to a point of recognizing their guilt, that it was bad. That's been part of this process, so that now he can come to this point and say, okay, no longer be distressed or angry. I'm releasing you from that. Don't hate yourself. I've released you. We would call that forgiveness, right? Joseph comes to this climax point and he's like, don't, so don't, let go of it. Why? His why is because God is at work doing something much bigger than this. And so we see God repurposing our pain, repurposing their pain. You sold me, but God sent me. And why did God send him? Look at verse five. You sold me here for God sent me to preserve life. Verse 6, he says there's going to be a lot more famine. There's a lot, you know, five more years are coming. More difficulty, neither plowing nor harvesting. You know, there's just, we got to just give up. There's no farming that's going to happen, right? Like, it's just going to be so bad. There's still going to be struggle all over the Middle East. Verse 7, God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and keep alive for you many survivors. Verse 8, it was not you who sent me, but God. And this is one of the paradoxes. We just run out of ways in English to describe what Joseph is describing here, right? Or in Hebrew or in Egyptian or whatever language you speak, we run out of ways to say it. Because he's like, don't be stressed because you did an evil thing, but God was doing a better thing. And then he says, you didn't even really do it. Really, it was God. You know, so there are these, these uh, paradoxes of how we talk about this as believers in God. And I think the tension we have to maintain is that evil is still evil, but God is bigger than that. And God can redirect and God can work around in his sovereignty. And so we should have an awe of God and his absolute sovereignty being in control of all things. And we should never forget that. But it shouldn't, it shouldn't dip into a kind of fatalism where we start mixing up language and calling what is bad good and good bad, right? So I think those are kind of the extremes here. We want to recognize his sovereignty over all of history, but we also want to say, well, evil is still evil. I'm going to call evil, evil. And that comes up again. Again, we see this in context. Genesis, the very end of the story, Genesis 50, the brothers bring it up to him again. And he's like, yeah, you intended it for evil. It was genuinely evil, but God intended good. 
And so we see this tension working out, and I think the big idea is God is saving through this. God is saving people. A remnant, right? That which was uh, a survivors out of God's promised people, right? He made these promises in Genesis to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, Joseph's father, and he's saying, we're going we're gonna to save the world through your children. And we see that that blessing on Israel comes to ultimate fruition through Jesus. We're about to celebrate that at Christmas time as we celebrate the advent of Jesus coming into the world. It's the fruition of all these promises made to Israel that God's going to work through a specific tribe. And remember in Deuteronomy, he says, I purposefully picked the wimpiest and tiniest of all tribes so no one would think it was how special this tribe was, but it was God's grace at work. So God works in these promises and he repurposes our pain. One of the symbols for pain throughout this story has been the tearing of robes. Um, This is the best high contrast picture I could find of a man tearing his robes. I know it's a little weird and creepy. I apologize. But it's not something we see a lot in our culture, right? Like we don't go around tearing our robes. I was talking, uh, we do a little podcast where we discuss the sermons. I was talking with Joey Colon and Chris Webster, a couple of our pastors about this. And Joey was like, you know, there's something beautiful about them having a concrete physical way to express grief, right? For those of us people that kind of struggle to express our emotions, it's nice. They just had a go-to, right? Like, well, I'm not a real emotional guy, but I know how to rip my clothes apart, right? And so there's the standard way they would express their grief and their pain and say, man, my world is falling apart. And we saw last week that God had taken the brothers to this place of, of being able to feel the pain that Jacob had gone through. And that was a part of their spiritual transma- uh, transformation. And so I want to press you again on that, that that is an important part of, of your growth spiritually, that you would feel pain about sin and death and brokenness. And one of the great dangers of uh, shifting to fatalism, where it's such a hyper view of God's sovereignty that like nothing matters, right? It's like whatever, inshallah, you know, like whatever happens, happens. If you shift too hard to that view, what you do is you're protecting yourself. That's not how God did it, right? Like God entered into our pain. God took on flesh as Jesus and he entered into our story and he felt all the pain. And so we're, we're not really allowed to just retreat into the invisible things of a sovereign God. We are to, to like stay in this world and we are to keep feeling that pain even as we recognize that God is sovereignly redirecting it all, right? And he's repurposing and, and changing and channeling and turning things for our good. And so we want to feel that pain but also recognize, as Celebrate Recovery says, God never wastes a hurt. And he can take those things and he can shift them for his glory. So we've seen the last couple of weeks, there are a lot of different things God can be doing. And one of them can be specifically helping you to recognize your sin. But that's not always what he's doing. And that's usually the first thing we go to, right? Like God's hitting me with a lightning bolt because I've been bad. And that's usually the first thing we go to. Often that's a part of what we need to go through, right? Like I'm in sin and I need to repent. I need to say I'm wrong and run to Jesus for forgiveness. But there are a lot of other things God is doing, and I want you to not miss that. That God can repurpose our pain and use the pain we've gone through to help save and heal and minister to others. And this becomes a really strong piece in the Apostle Paul's ministry philosophy. 2 Corinthians, you can just read the whole book. It's basically all about that. He starts out really strong with it in chapter 1, and I mentioned this before. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, he says, As I've struggled... And I've gone through affliction and God has comforted me that enables me to comfort other people. So often through the pain and the difficulty you're going through, you're, you're being given a ministry. And that's part of what Joseph is recognizing here. He's saying, yeah, this was a horrible thing I've gone through, but look, I'm, I'm now saving you. I'm saving the whole world, <laughs> right? Like Joseph has this 
opportunity to save many. And that's part of how Joseph reflects Jesus to us, right? Joseph not, is not the perfect son of God. Joseph is not the one who dies for all sin over all time, but he kind of stands as a, as a little mirror or a reminder of what Jesus is like and that he is in this place of saving the known world at this time. He is a, we've said, junior savior that points us to Jesus, the ultimate savior. So God repurposes our pain. Uh, another New Testament reminder of how God can do this, what seems to be happening in this story is in 2 Corinthians 4. So again, I said all of 2 Corinthians is helpful, but 2 Corinthians 4 says, we don't lose heart. In 2 Corinthians 4.17, Paul says this. He says, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Paul goes on later in chapter 5 and says, in this tent we groan. We long to not be in pain anymore. So again, that's the tension we go through as followers of God is we're haunted by the reality that he's doing something through our pain, but that, that doesn't mean we don't have the right to say, God, make the pain stop, right? Like we pray that. That's a part of what it means to walk with God. We run to him and say, Daddy, will you make the stop? Because I don't know if I can handle it. And sometimes he says, yes, I will. And sometimes he says, no, wait, there's something bigger and greater that I'm doing through this pain. So we run to him, we ask for this. The way Paul describes it is we groan, we long for heaven, we long for perfection, we long for the finishing of the story, we long for it all to be wrapped up and, and to be able to see the ending, right? How many of you, when you buy a book, you, you flip to the end, you cheat? Yeah, right? So you're the one that especially longs for the end of the story, right? I do that sometimes as well. Like, how does, how's this gonna end? Do I wanna waste my time on this story, right? And, and as we're walking through life and as we're going through pain, that is experientially how it feels, right? You're starting to wonder, am, am I wasting my time on this story? Has God sent me here? Is this all just meaningless? Like everybody, you know, like my college professor said, it's all meaningless. Or is God haunting the story? And if God is haunting your story, then he can, he can repurpose the pain that you're going through. He can make sense out of it. And so part of that is a change of mind. Part of that is recognizing God's sovereignty and God's goodness and submitting yourself to that. And then just by prayer saying, what, what's my role to play here? God, like what is, what is the part of the story you want me to play in this pain, in this difficulty? How do you want me to reflect your kindness? The way Joseph says it to the brothers is he says, don't be distressed, don't be angry, don't beat yourself up, don't hate each other, don't hate yourselves, but recognize what God's doing. I think that's the first step. We recognize what God is up to. The saving of many lives is the way Joseph describes it. And again, this is emotional. This is messy. He's crying his eyes out. It says people heard him, right? Did you catch that? Verse 1, 2, 3. It's like others heard him screaming and wailing and weeping as he came to this point. Yet he's moving forward and recognizing God's goodness in the midst of the pain. Okay, we've got to move on to the second point. Um, God reconciles enemies. Look at verses 8 through 14. God reconciles enemies in verse 8. He said, again, this repetition, it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. The father to Pharaoh phrase is just an ancient world way of saying, I think maybe the best way for us to understand it is Pharaoh is really in charge. So like Pharaoh is the father of Egypt, but Joseph is the grandpa of Egypt is kind of the way that you might translate this in ancient Middle East terming, right? So Joseph as the assistant to Pharaoh one of the ways they would talk about that, the vizier or the prime minister or the assistant pharaoh would be called the father of pharaoh, but that's kind of like he's the, 
He's like the part-time retired grandpa, but Pharaoh's the one in charge <laughs> of the war. So anyway, um, it just it comes across strange in English. So he says, he's made me a father to Pharaoh, Lord over all his house, ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father. Now he's talking about Jacob. Go up to my father and say to him, thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord over all of Egypt. Come down to me. Do not tarry. That means delay. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen and you shall be near me. You and your children and your children's children and your flocks and your herds and all that you have. There I'll provide for you for there are yet five years of famine to come so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see that it is my mouth that speaks to you. Um, so before, he was speaking how to them? He was speaking through a translator, right? Um, and we have to assume just based on his position and power that he had an entourage. There was like a secret service. There was distance, right? Which would kind of explain some of how they didn't quite recognize him, right? He looked different. He's probably wearing Egyptian makeup, wearing the cobra hat, all the stuff. He was shaven. You know, he looked culturally different, and so they didn't recognize him. But also there's probably physical difference. Because if you notice at the beginning of chapter 45, he's like, come, come near to me. It's me. It's me come close. And now he's saying, it's my mouth speaking these things to you. So now he's speaking in Hebrew again. He's no longer speaking Egyptian, pretending to be an Egyptian, speaking through a translator. He's now close and intimate to them. And we see in this the seeds of reconciliation, what it, what it takes to be reconciled with enemies. As God works in our life, there's a closeness that begins to grow. That distance is no longer maintained. Some of those walls are coming down. So he says, my mouth speaks to you. Verse 13, you must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt and of all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck. So we've talked about this. There's a special closeness. Benjamin is his whole brother, his blood brother, same mother. Some of the jealousy though that has arisen, some of the family tension we talked about that we've, many of us have experienced in our own families, right? This was a complicated step family with two wives and two concubines, so four mothers and one father, 12 sons, different birth order, different claims to power and inheritance. And these two, Joseph and Benjamin, are the last of the favorite mothers. So there was all kinds of jealousy. And so Joseph has a natural closeness and tenderness and affection with Benjamin. But look at verse 15. And he kissed all his brothers and he wept upon them. And after that, his brothers talked with him. The reconciliation is complete. Now, in a story climax kind of way, there's going to there's be more that's going to come, right? They're going to pull back and be afraid of him later, and he's going to have to reassure him. But here, they're talking, and they're crying together. They're hugging, they're weeping, they're, they're reconnecting. And so we see this reconciliation of, of what had been enemies, bitter enemies, so what does this look like for us? I, I grabbed a picture here. Um, this case was a, an amazing case. And, and I bring it up, I brought it up a, a couple of weeks ago. It's a great case because we all disagree on it, right? Because we're a divided culture. And so we all have different views of like, too much grace, too much justice, you know? And that's why it's such a great example in the Geiger-Jean case because there was such division. And you saw healing in the midst of division. It was like a little flower growing through the sidewalk, right? Uh, there's this beautiful thing that happens around central Texas. Uh, the ground often, many parts of the ground, there's no dirt, it's just gravel. Have you all noticed that before? And there are these little flowers that'll sometimes just grow up from the rock. And you're like, how did that happen? Like there's no water, there's no soil, 
But this little flower grows up, and sometimes that's what it's like when there's reconciliation among enemies. And I think we need to stop and celebrate that. Even if we disagree with everything else that's happened in the case, there's still an example of reconciliation taking place. And this is kind of this crazy, um, the way I like to describe what mercy and what grace does in our life as we reconcile with enemies, is it's not irrational, but it's kind of super rational, right? As we understand this in Christianity in a broader sense, it's not that God does away with justice. Mercy triumphs over justice. God is both just and the justifier of the wicked. And if you don't understand how that works, you need to study the cross of Christ and read the entire book of Romans about five times through, okay? But Christianity alone, listen to this, Christianity alone among world religions makes sense of a God that can be simultaneously just and gracious. And that's the only foundation, amen, that's the only foundation for real reconciliation among enemies. Now, I need to back up a little bit and say, what does God require of you and me? God requires of you and me that we forgive our enemies. And that's a step before full reconciliation, right? I don't know that it requires weeping and kissing every time. I really don't. Yeah, maybe I'm cynical, but I think he requires you to forgive those who have wronged you. But that doesn't mean you like kiss them and give them the keys to your house and invite them in. I just think it it doesn't. Um, God requires you to forgive them, but he may also be telling you, but justice requires you report them to police, right? Like both might be required. You might have to press charges against your abuser even as you then, at the end of the court case, hug them and say, I forgive you. That's the weird tension that's hard for us to live out in real life, right? And so you may not be inviting them into your home. You may not have full reconciliation like is taking place here. Again, we've seen this long process over many chapters that built to this where trust was restored. But what do you have to do? You have to forgive. That's what you have to do. Colossians 3.13 says, You forgive because Christ forgave you. You and I are guilty of the greatest sin and treason that the world has ever seen. Cosmic treason against the judge of the universe. And he forgave us. So Christianity says because he forgave us of the greater debt, we will forgive the lesser debts. Jesus gives a parable where he flips that around. And he says the person that was forgiven millions of dollars, but then he doesn't forgive the guy that owns him $10, then he's not really forgiven. That, that million-dollar debt is then rescinded. And so Jesus gives you the scary version, but Paul gives a nicer version in Colossians 3, right? He says it positively. He just says, hey, Jesus forgave you, so forgive others. Jesus forgave you, so forgive others. That's what we're commanded to do. The question is, do you have someone that you're, you're holding back, right? Because in your mind, you're thinking, well, I don't want to, I can't let them in my house. Okay, well, that may, may not be it. It may just be writing a note. Maybe a prayer between you and God. There's, there's levels of danger and trust involved that, that I think will change what forgiveness looks like. But before God, you have to forgive them. That may not even be expressing that to them, but you need to forgive them before God. And so that's what we're called to. Romans 12, 18 says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Live peaceably with all. That's, like, that's the next level, right? Past forgiveness is, is trying to have some level of peace. And then the third level is the weeping and full reconciliation. And we pray that that will happen because I think that's a beautiful picture of the gospel. And that's one of the things that the church images as we gather different tribes from different places, right? Our parents hated each other and warred with each other, but now we can be one in Christ, right? And so there's a level of that kind of reconciliation that we model as churches gather all over the world. 
different tongues and tribes, gathering together saying, Jesus is our Lord now, not, not those grudges we held in the past, but now Jesus is Lord. So the final, final step here is that God redirects kings. And this points back to the God's sovereignty, the God's ultimate kingship. God is king of kings, Lord of lords. He's over everything. And we see this in verses 16 and following through the close of the story. Um, so pick it up in verse 16. The report was heard in Pharaoh's house. Joseph's brothers have come. It pleased Pharaoh and his servants. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, say to your brothers, do this. Load your beasts and go back to the land of Canaan. Take your father and your households and come to me. I will give you the best of the land of Egypt and you shall eat the fat of the land. And you, Joseph, are commanded to say, do this. Take wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones, for your wives. Bring your father and come. Have no concern for your goods for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. And the sons of Israel did so. And Joseph gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh and gave them provisions for the journey. To each and all of them he gave a change of clothes, but to Benjamin he gave 300 shekels. Yeah, and five changes of clothes. To his father he sent as follows, 10 donkeys loaded with good things of Egypt and 10 female donkeys loaded with grain, bread, and provision for his, father's, or his father on the journey. Then he sent his brothers away and they departed and he said to them, don't quarrel on the way, okay? Don't, don't fight, right? Because think about this, right? They're going back. They're going to have to tell dad everything they did. They've already now come clean accidentally to Joseph, and now there's been reconciliation. Now they have to go back and tell their dad. Oh, by the way, dad, we lied to you for 20 years. We, we caused the greatest heartbreak you've ever endured. And, and the story doesn't even really tell us how they settle up. We, we don't know how that unfolds, but we assume it's based on this theology, this God-entranced view of reality that Joseph has just given to them. Yes, you are guilty, but God is saving. Yeah, there is justice and, and you are wrong and you owe something, but you're not going to pay it because God is so gracious. He's made payment for it. He, he's the one that's provided the way for you. And so we see this, this picture unfolding. Don't quarrel on the way. And what's amazing here is that Pharaoh is ratifying everything that Joseph has already done. And again, we don't know exactly how that works. We assume because of Pharaoh's great trust of Joseph at this point, the Pharaoh's just like, man, Joseph, I trust you. You saved my empire. Whatever you want to do, right? If these are your brothers, we'll bless them. Well, you know, whatever we want to do. But it's put into the text to show the affirmation and ratification, right? It's command language. So again, thinking in the ancient world, this isn't just like buddies hanging out like, yeah, sure. You know, Joseph has this idea. Let's save my brothers. And then Pharaoh's like, hey, I just randomly had the same idea, right? I, I think it's more official than that. It is like Pharaoh officially ratifying this is what we will do. We're going to write it in our Egyptian law and save the Hebrew people. This is going to happen. And we see the fulfillment of the promises that God made to Abraham years ago saying, you know what? Your people will sojourn in Egypt for 400 years. God is telling a long story here. You see that? So like for me, when I get frustrated that God's telling a 10, 20 year cliffhanger in my life, and I'm like, God, why can't you end this, right? This was a 400-year story, right? This is a co totally different perspective, and we get the benefit of seeing the story. And again, it reminds us that, that God is haunting this story. We think of it as a disenchanted, God's nowhere around, because I can't see Him, because it's not easy. He must not be here. But the Scriptures remind us again and again that even in our moments where God seems most absent, He's actually there. He, he's haunting our story. He's pursuing us 
And so Proverbs 21 says it this way, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. And so I don't know if you do dishes and uh, here's a picture of someone got the water pouring in their hands. You know, sometimes when I'm doing the dishes, you know, there's coffee grounds in the sink and I, I push the water that way. I push the water this way. It, Proverbs 21 says that's what God does to the heart of a king. He's just like, go a little left, go a little right. Do this today. I want you to do this tomorrow. And again, this brings us to all these questions about the sovereignty of God. Well, how can God, if God does that, right, then how do we explain Hitler? How do we explain the later Pharaoh that was evil and, you know, in contrast to the good Pharaoh? It's all comfortable when it's the good Pharaoh, right? Like when it's the king that you like and God's doing what you want God to do, then it's an okay story. How, what do, how do we make sense of when God is directing the heart of a king and he allows him to do these evil things? Now, Scripture gives a lot of explanation about it. Romans 9 talks about that. It says, God, God will have mercy on whom God has mercy. Scripture gives some explanation, but I'll tell you, go ahead and read it. Read Romans 9. It's not super satisfying, okay? Because <laughs> in a way, God's just saying, that, that's for me to know and, and you to maybe figure out in heaven. I don't know even if we will then, but he's, he's saying, just trust me. Just trust me. Trust that I'm sovereign over this whole story. Trust that God is haunting the story and God is redirecting the king's in the good and the bad. So then in Romans 13, when God tells us to be subject over the governing authorities that trust that the kings are put in place to punish evil and to support what is good, best we can tell at that time, the king, when Paul's writing these instructions about submitting to kings, best we can tell at that time, the kings were, were taking Christians and sticking them on giant torches and lighting them on fire. That's the king that Paul was telling us to submit to and to trust. And so it's not just when everything's rosy that we submit. Now, I would argue that we also do everything in our power to push back the darkness in the world, to oppose evil, to oppose injustice. That's our role to play, right? So it's not a passive, whatever, whatever the king does, God's in charge, so I'm not going to do anything. No, it, it actually empowers us to obey and to challenge evil when we see evil, right? We all have a role to play. So we should be active even as we trust, our trust in the sovereignty of God doesn't excuse us to have a fatalism where we're just like, whatever, God's in charge. No, it actually drives us, like Jesus, to, to rush towards the danger. And that's the picture we have of our Savior and our Lord. This is the God that took on flesh and entered into our world. He rushed in to the danger. And that's the same experience that we should have as we trust that God is good. And so we see in the end, they convince Jacob to come back. When they first tell Jacob the story, if you look at verse 25, they said, Joseph, uh, 26, they said, Joseph is still alive and he's ruler over all the land of Egypt and his heart became numb for he did not believe them. So again, this is playing out in real time. This is like the, the days and weeks of disbelief that you go through. Jacob, the father of our faith, one of the fathers of our faith, he went through the same kind of thing. Like, no, I don't, I don't even believe this is possible that God would be moving in this gracious way to fulfill the promises that he made to me and my father and my grandfather and my great-grandfather. His heart is numb and he doesn't believe. But then finally, God redirects the heart of this king, Jacob, this chieftain. He moves him to a place of belief and, and Jacob moves and Jacob goes and he takes his family. And in chapter 46, God reassures him, right? Like this is so crazy, God appears to him in a vision that says, no, it really is going to be okay. This is really going to work out. And so again, I want to just come back to the main theme. We have these stories, these crazy stories that God gives us where 
there are stories like your story and my story where everything seems to be coming apart. As we've said, the theme for this whole series, that we live in this dysfunctional world with family abuse and scandal and politics that we don't like and everything seeming to fall apart and famine and disease and all these things that we wrestle with. But God is at work. God has purposes. God is saving a people for Himself. And this points to that reality that God is, God is pursuing us, right? It's not just a story that you are to objectify and say, over there, here's a story of God at work in, in the ancient Middle East. But what I want you to feel is it's a story of, of God haunting you and me in our story and to let go of our Stockholm Syndrome where we believe we're going to be so much more secure and so much more safe if we just stay with our addictions and stay with our pain. He's saying, no, I know it's terrifying, but let go of those and run to me. C.S. Lewis expressed his conversion in that same kind of Stockholm Syndrome way. C.S. Lewis said, "Um, that night you must picture me alone in that room at the college, night after night feeling whenever my mind lifted even for a second from my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him whom I so earnestly desired not to meet. That which I greatly feared had at last come upon me. In 1929, I gave in and admitted that God was God. And I knelt and prayed, perhaps that night, the most dejected and reluctant convert in all of England. That's his story from Surprised by Joy. We have a similar ending to the Hound of Heaven story, right? Finally, after trying everything, after running and running and running, finally the narrator of the poem, The Hound of Heaven, gives in and recognizes that this hound that I've been so afraid of that's chasing me and chasing me and chasing me, the footsteps I keep hearing, I finally realize that's the only one that actually loves me. And the author gives himself and trusts himself. And that's really where we are. Whether you already did that in a sense years ago, you may be in a place of pain right now where you need to do that all over again. You just need to say, I trust, even though the pain I'm going through is something I never dreamed of, I trust God that you're at work and I can entrust myself to you. And you want to work through me for the saving of others. Recognize that God is, is haunting you, that he's in your story, and that he loves you. Let me pray for us. God, thank you that you love us. Thank you that you've given yourself for us in Jesus. And that's how we, in a crystal clear way, see what you're doing. You came and you took our sin upon yourself on the cross and you give us resurrection life. You were not bound by sin and death, but you broke free, showing us that you are both just and the justifier of the wicked. That you are both a God of justice and a God of grace and mercy, a mercy for us. So help us to see your involvement in our story. And I pray that you'd help us to play our role well. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.